Welcome, friends. It's time for another Tokenomics on this week's episode. Very exciting. I've got a veteran yet mysterious game designer, Space Dogs, one of the people behind uh, upcoming NFT game Void Runners. And we're going to talk about writing light papers, white papers, game design documents in public uh, on this week's Tokenomics. So stick around. Excited about NFTs in the metaverse? Ready to be part of the future of gaming? Recur is looking for talented producers, product managers, game designers, economy designers, and engineers. Recur is building branded NFT collectibles and games with top IP, including College Sports, Paramount, Star Trek, Nickelodeon, Sanrio, and more, using its best-in-the-industry technology platform. Recur's platform streamlines the NFT collecting experience. No crypto or third-party wallets required. Simply buy an NFT with your credit card or Apple Pay. And Recur's robust gamification system creates infinite collecting and gameplay possibilities from which to make compelling play and earn experiences. Recur is backed by some of the biggest names in crypto and NFTs, including billionaire Stephen Cohn, Gary Vee, and Gemini, among others. Join us now and get ready to ride a rocket ship. Let's fucking go. All right, we are back. Uh, Recur just did, I think, uh, a drop for Top Gun. I think I just got an email about getting a, a flight helmet or something, NFT, so I'll have to check that out later. Anyways, uh, Space Dog, welcome. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Uh, so you're uh, you're a little more privacy-focused than me. I'm, uh, I may one day regret it, but uh, um, I can verify for the audience that this is a superstar game designer, behind uh, a top-grossing hit that you have very likely played and have uh, a great industry in the game, uh, great experience in the games industry. Uh, can you uh, give us a little bit of an intro uh, to yourself and your background in making games without giving away any PII, I guess? <laughs> I sure can. Uh, so I've been working in games for a long time now, um, and I've had a chance to experience a uh, a bunch of kind of different uh, game making environments. So uh, I've worked uh, as a design consultant in AAA, um, so helping um, vet the the uh, core play experiences of uh, kind of console style games. Um, I've done some work in uh, kind of experimental early games uh, when games were first taking advantage of kind of social and mobile platforms. Mm -hmm. Um, worked a lot with indie teams, uh, and then uh, also on the mobile free-to-play side. So I've kind of had a chance to sort of um, get my uh, feet wet in uh, all of those different spheres, so kind of the indie sphere, the AAA sphere, and the mobile free-to-play sphere. Yeah, and I can uh, vouch for the audience that we, we won't say which ones, but if you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you've had... Uh, played one of the hit games Space Dog has had a hand in. Um, so uh, we first got connected. I think you maybe heard me shouting on the internet about uh, moving from mobile free-to-play to, -play to uh, Web3 and reached out, and we've had a couple very nice uh, phone conversations. Uh, why don't you tell uh, what, what inspired you to move to Web3? What is it about blockchain games that, uh, as a designer, piqued your interest? Oh, so many things. I think that the, the light bulb kind of really went off for me when I 
properly understood the ownership implications of NFTs and the and the utility. Uh, I think to begin with, when I was a bit more ignorant, I, I was kind of at that stage that a lot of people were at. Were like, these pictures seem overpriced, and not really <laughs> not really understanding what else was going on. And then uh, I got to know some projects where I realized the pictures. Well, right. Do you do you have one of those moments where you're like kicking yourself, like? Who would pay $1,000 for this stupid ape picture? Um, I certainly wouldn't. Yeah. I, I, I luck, luckily, I was so late to the party, I dodged those terrible bullets. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely, it took me a while to kind of like understand what the, the implications were. And I think once I understood that uh, NFTs could do things, that the, the, the interesting element of a smart contract was the functionality, um, that kind of like started a, a whole sequence of kind of ideas uh, popping off in my head. So I had a chance to, uh, I helped out a little on the Legend Maps game project, which launched last year, uh, which if you haven't had a chance to check out, I, I highly recommend taking a look at. Really, really mm -hmm. cool uh, roguelike inspired um, project where their first mint was the maps that would form uh, the gameplay levels. Uh, and so you, as a owner of that project, kind of own a component of the game. And then as other adventurers come in and play on your map, if they die on your map, you can uh, claim the stuff that they leave behind. Uh, and that was kind of like uh, a real moment for me of understanding the potential. So, yeah, I think what I wanted to I do... I started uh, following Legend Maps on your recommendation and, and joined their Discord. And I actually won one of their <gasps> writing contests. And I hold a, a Legend Map. Every couple of days, I get one of those OpenSea emails of someone right. trying to snipe it from me. I'll bet. I'm like, uh, no, this thing's mine. Yeah. Uh, it's they're really. I really like them. They're um, I As an old school PC gamer, The that's one of the few where just the visuals alone really appeal to me. Yeah, right. It, it gives you the whole, it tells you so much about their vibe and the gameplay uh, and the potential. It's, yeah, I, it's a project I love a lot. Um, so, yeah, I think I started to get really interested in uh, the gameplay implications of making games in an environment that was public permanent and anonymous that felt to me like a really kind of intoxicating mix of elements hmm. that if your gameplay is on chain it's visible to everyone uh some people may or may not bother to look it may or may not be in a particularly digestible or kind of player basing player facing format but it's there it's always going to be there that record is there um you're not necessarily visible as a private individual. I, as you mentioned at the beginning, I'm, I'm choosing not to share that part of my life uh, with this project. Un but unlike me, you have something we call healthy boundaries. I yeah. Think. And honestly, I, I think it's a, it's a very important element of Web3 that that, that is now possible. I think uh, right. it's, it's uh, you know, I, I'm very glad to have that choice. Um, but as a player... Uh, my behavior in the game will be visible, even if my personal identity isn't connected with it. And that felt like a very interesting uh, kind of design space. And so that to me was where we, we wanted to kind of dig in, was that the, what the blockchain is, is a tool for solving human interaction problems, fundamentally. The blockchain is saying, 
it is hard for two people to agree on a thing in a way that they know is going to stick and be trustworthy. And so this is a technology which enables two strangers to come together and knowing only what they know in the contract, feel confident that they can have an interaction that they can both rely on. It's a pretty cool kind of technology. What does it look like if you build a game out of those moments of human interaction? So the Voidrunner's game that the, we came up with was kind of built out of that, you know, that kind of raw material. So it's a, it's a game that's full of spaceships. We can talk a lot of, I hope we talk a lot about spaceships. Yeah. Um, but I actually the... have a no spaceship rule. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I would I would rage quit. I think if you tried right. to, if yeah. you tried to, to me. shortest uh, interview, <laughs> you will you'll end my uh, you'll end my career as wannabe video game Mark Marin uh, here. Uh, but yeah, I think I mean that's really interesting. It's very similar for me as a game designer. It sounds like. Because it wasn't like I looked at NBA Top Shot and was amazed necessarily at what I was seeing as much as I saw potential uh, to do something new with, with game design Yeah, uh, using this technology. And that's what excited me. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think that that was also... So when we got, we got started, as I was saying, I, d I didn't know a lot about the space. We, we were still kind of figuring out what our ideas were going to be. One of the things we said was, all right, we're going we're gonna to spend four weeks, eight weeks getting smart, or at least smarter about what's possible here, and then evaluate whether or not we should stick with it. So how are we going to evaluate whether or not we should make the move to, to basically becoming a Web3 studio? And a couple of really core evaluation uh, kind of criteria that we came up with was one was just are, are are we having fun and doing good work are we are we making is being in this space enabling us to make things that are cooler and more enjoyable than we were doing in the way that we were working before and that was abundantly true we've been able to do a bunch of crazy cool stuff that we didn't know that we were going to end up doing and then the other thing was if we're doing this right we should end up making a thing that we wouldn't make anywhere else that mm. if all if all we end up doing is just like making a game that could just be a free to play game sitting in the app store, but it but it's annoying to buy stuff. Like if that's if that's all we accomplish, <laughs> then that feels like a really big failure. And so weirdly, what got us excited was once the project kind of came together and we knew where we wanted to go with it. We looked at it and we're like, yeah, this wouldn't work anywhere else. This is not a good pitch for a Switch game. This is not a good pitch. Right. Uh, for a mobile game, this is a weird idea. And that oddly gave us a huge amount of confidence. It was like, right, that means we're, we're, we can't promise that it will, you know, be a hit. We can't promise that people will like it, but we can know in ourselves that we are approaching this design space in the right way because we're coming up with something that is defined by the design affordances of this platform that are unique to this platform. And so that felt super encouraging. Yeah, that's really great. I um, that's really I mean, I know that's that's hard to do. I I certainly um, uh, I'm not sure. You know, there are probably some elements to the to the legendary game that I'm working on right now. I'd have to think about if the game would be impossible to do if it weren't for um, 
blockchain. Actually, yeah. So there, there are some. Okay, I, I, I have some. Cut. You, you made me doubt myself for a second. <laughs> but I'm like, no. There's, there's, there's one or two things we're doing that are related to progress and the mechanism and gating of progress, um, that you just wouldn't do in this type of game. Um, if it weren't for the blockchain elements and, you know, I, I come from, I, I have a very strong focus on monetization. So like there are some things that I would be selling that I wouldn't sell and some types of progress I would allow for that I've cut off, right. um, specifically because of the chance for the secondary revenue yep. and to really say like the way we win is not by selling as many heroes and card packs every week as possible but actually by keeping players around for as long as possible and so that way we get to actually jettison some of the um some of the tropes um um, from from our other free-to-play games uh so can you tell me uh, a little bit explain a little bit about what void runners is and I'm really interested in what are those elements of the game that you feel like are um, enabled uh, by the blockchain, make you look at the game and say, this is a game um, we could only do in Web3, or if we did it in any other way, it wouldn't have the same uh, emotional impact and, and payoff for our players. Sure. Let's, let's see if I can live up to my own hype. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so let me kind of give you your bearings in terms of what the game is first and foremost. So um, the project launches with a collection of uh, r- dynamically generated 3D spaceships. Um, and they build into a blockchain game set in space, set in the void, uh, which is uh, a multiplayer game about... Uh, transporting cargo, holding your nerve, and pushing your luck. So the the void is a vast galaxy, rich in resources. Um, those resources are uh, transported around the galaxy by uh, this group of people called the Void Runners, uh, who uh, are the kind of like the cargo haulers uh, of the void, and they transmit cargo from outpost to outpost. However, that trade is overseen by a space bureaucracy called uh, the Galactic Trade Authority. Um, And the Galactic Trade Authority make the rules and constantly change the rules about who is allowed to dock where. So a runner can dock their... I I was just reading about that in in the uh, game paper. There you go. That's uh, one of the interesting things (laughs) is uh, that the rules of the galaxy change on a timer like every four hours? Or? Yeah, that's it. Um, so the, Galtroth, the Galactic Trade Authority, Gal- Galtroth to its friends and enemies, um, is an unpredictable uh, rule setter. Uh, and I, I think we, we part, if we want to like nerd out on theoretical game design, one of the reasons we wanted to have that in there is I'm always very interested in designing around kind of three-point triangular power structures are always more interesting and and dynamic than uh, straight kind of like 1v1 power structures. So the Galactic Trade Authority is kind of our third presence in the game because runners are parking their ships at outposts. So outposts are also owned by players. Mm -hmm. Um, And outpost owners are in charge of uh, activating Galtroth's rules. 
So if you're a, if you're a runner, you can dock at any outpost that has space available for you. Um, you can do that legally if you can. You can choose to do it illegally if you can't. And then the outpost owner uh, is able to confiscate your cargo if you're illegal. So it's a big game and it's a big galaxy, but what it boils down to in terms of that human interaction moment is that if I dock my spaceship at your outpost, suddenly the two of us are tied together via the blockchain in this little battle of wills. The amount of cargo that's on my ship is increasing over time. The likelihood that I'm going to go illegal is increasing over time. Any moment that I'm illegal, you're able to ticket me and grab my cargo. But because the amount of cargo that I have is increasing over time, you're incentivized to wait so that that goes up before mm. uh, you make your move. I can leave at any time and escape the threat of you deciding to <laughs> steal everything that I've got. But I'm incentivized to wait because the amount that I'm loading is going up over time. And so, so it's like we on chain galactic chicken. Yeah, we are psyching each other out. Um, trying to figure out how far each of us can push our luck uh, in any given moment. And this is when this being, this operating within a metaverse structure is also very important. I was saying at the beginning, this thing about it's, it's, it's public, but anonymous. I'm able to see, you know, basically I'm able to see all your receipts. I know everything about what has happened on your outpost previously because all mm. of that is publicly available on the blockchain. I might know other stuff about you depending on how you've how you're choosing to operate uh, your web through identity. Maybe I know uh, your PFP, maybe I know what other projects you hold, maybe I know what else is going on in your wallet. Suddenly there's an opportunity for conversation, collusion, second guessing, all kinds of weird, this is the stuff, This is <laughs> we listed it on our website that one of the things that we wanted to do by coming into making blockchain games was was enable weird play patterns and strange right. interactions. And so we've kept the core interaction incredibly simple. I mean, I, I, I take no offense at you saying this is just, this is just space chicken. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a good way of putting it. And that's really deliberate. It's a, it's a very, very, it's a lean, but very volatile, very emotionally charged mechanic that sits very comfortably on the blockchain. It's, it's designed to be, uh, it's kind of a, sl a relatively slow cadence of transactions. So it's not too time critical. It's not expensive to run, but because, uh, time can be split into infinite gradients the the half second that I choose to make my move before you choose to make your move is a kind of really significant gameplay resource. It's like treating treating time um, as a time and risk as a as a kind of interesting interrelated pair. And so once you have that core, you can kind of like build out from there into both conventional uh, richer gameplay design. So I know uh, that, that I'm, I'm sure we'll talk more about the, the game paper, but you can see in there things about how um, upgrades and other structures start to come into play that deepen the strategic landscape in terms of, well, maybe I'm not going to choose your outpost to dock at, maybe I'm going to dock somewhere else because of facilities they have or 
buffs or benefits that I'll get by being there. Um, but then also this kind of like strange, rich social stew of if, you know, we're both um, goblins, I guess, is who we would both like to be right now. If we're both goblins holders and I, as a goblin holder park at your outpost, you may choose not to ticket me. You may mm -hmm. decide, hey, no, this outpost has a all goblins are friends policy. You're going to make right. less money that way, but you're going to... But also, you don't need to hold up your end of the bargain. If somebody parks with a particularly fat payload, you can decide that that trumps your goblin loyalty. But then all of that will be visible on the blockchain to the next goblin that comes along. So you start with this tight, focused, quite intimate player dynamic, and then you bolt a bunch of interesting gameplay uh, upgrades and expansions and social depth and strangeness on top of it. And that turns in, we hope, to something pretty special. Right. We can we can sense here uh, the two different backgrounds of game design coming into play where you with the more indie background, you're like, how can I use blockchain to enable emergent social behavior in a way that wouldn't happen in my games otherwise? And me, the monetization designer, being like, how can I use the blockchain to create new patterns of monetization so that I can have a financially successful game uh, that players like? It's it's funny that that, um, <laughs> that, that like bleeds through to the core of, of the choices we've made. Um, so I uh, part of why I wanted to have this conversation was... Um, I had just finished writing the first draft of the uh, white paper, the game paper for uh, Legendary Heroes Unchained. Uh, I don't know how much this draft will or won't change before we go live. Um, it's like a 17,000 word behemoth. Uh, it's like my doctoral thesis basically is how I feel about it. Um, and it has one kind of viewpoint um, and you probably within uh, days of when I'd finished that draft, I saw uh, in that you released to uh, your Discord that your game paper was live and uh, much leaner, but still, you know, it's got a game design focus. You can tell it's like from a game designer, um, talks about mechanics, but I thought it would be really interesting since we both were doing this exercise at the same time. Uh, to talk about writing a, a, a game paper and the process of it. Um, I, I wanted to start with, as you prepared for it, what were some of the other game papers or light papers you've read for research or any? Like, how did you get your bearings? I mean, this is part of what's interesting to me about the development space is like, I can't read the Ratchet and Clank game design documents and yeah. like learn how they do it. But a big part of me onboarding my brain to blockchain gaming was spending a weekend and reading Aurori and Sandbox and uh, Star Atlas and uh, Chimby Valley. And I think there were five or six others. Like I just read a bunch of these documents. And when I was through, I felt like, oh, I understand a lot more about the space and the expectations of people in the space than I did when I started. So right. how did you, um, did you have a similar research uh, process or like who, what did you read? Yeah, I mean, I mean, definitely overlapping. Um, 
Jimmy and, and Star Atlas are, are for sure on my list there. Um, Illuvium, I think I, I mm. uh, looked at a lot. It's, it's well-structured and interesting tokenomics design. Um, and then in the run-up where we're putting it together, I mean, I think the the Raid Party docs are fantastic. The Citadel docs are fantastic. Um, and yeah, we were definitely um, trying to kind of like live up to those standards a little bit. I mean, it was, I don't know if you had this experience, it was a little weird to me because if you're coming out of mainstream game dev, design documents kind of fell out of favor a few years ago, maybe more than a few years ago, that every project used to start with a GDD mm -hmm. and then everybody got tired of GDDs being stale and being, uh, you know, sometimes I think misleading because they were, you had a lot of game designers who, who would write long word documents that were maybe like good essays, but not necessarily good production plans or right. really actually good... Um, you know, good, good, you know, they encapsulated the dynamics, but not any of the other stuff that you need. And then we've all been through this thing of like, I, everything I did was a wiki for a while. And then everything I right. did was a deck for a while. Now and it's then, a notion page. And now it's, a you know. I mean, so, really, yeah, <laughs> with me, I, I feel like all these things just mean um, I'm kind of going back to the, like, all of these things for me at least turned into an exercise in writing your design document, like, one 10-page section at a time, uh, right. while people are asking you, like, please can I have the document so that I can implement <laughs> the thing now? Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, you know, when I think about my, um, the first one I wrote uh, professionally and not uh, just in, in, in class, um it was at play first. It was for this game, uh, mystery of shark Island, uh, which is not notable in, in any way, shape or form, but, but very funny, I think in, in retrospect, but, um, the first, um, version I turned in the head of QA came back to me and was like, I can't, I can't test the game based on this. Like it was very narrative, right. um, and very general, and that was the first time I kind of understood like, oh, there's an audience for this doc and it's the engineers and the QA department and the engineers need to know what they're supposed to do and the QA department needs to know what to test. And I, you know, for whatever perverse reason, I like pride myself in, in my design documentation now that a lot of times... Um, my QA lead can just take it like line by sections of it, line by line and paste it into a spreadsheet and call the test plan. Like I like that it's that clear. And I kind of learned that there's like layers of, of your document when you're doing it in that format. There's like marketing, hype generation up front, and, but then you need the details uh, if your client, if you're thinking about your clients um, being QA and engineering so that they can do their job. And so it's like a very different type of writing than uh, fiction. Yeah. Or journal, you know, um, I write a lot of articles. It's very different than that. Like, so, um, so given that long preamble, like when you, when you thought about, you know, a lot of the white uh, game papers that were out, um, the, the target market, seems very crypto crypto native um it's not developer focused it's very hype uh driven documents not not 
the one, not all of them, not the ones we're mm. seeing today, but like I'll point to Star Atlas as one that I've had a lot of conversations with people about where, you know, they generated hype. They've raised a ton of money. Mm. Um, they've got some really nice 3D imagery, and it's interesting to see how that project's coming along. Um, and I'm honestly envious of their success, but like I read their, I, I remember when I read their white paper, there's like two pages where I'm like, oh, wow, you just described four different AAA games, each of which that takes three people, <laughs> three, like three to four years and like hundreds of people to build. Like this game that you're promising, it's underbaked and it's never coming. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So I, I adopted a tone for my draft um, that was like, I'm going to prove to you that we are real game developers. And it almost, you know, sections of mine like look like my game design documents and part of people's reaction internally already and probably what's going to motivate some of the changes like this seems, do you really want to share all this detail? And I said, well, my, you know, my theory is I want to go to the audience and there's been a lot of, a lot of projects. We're through the easy phase. We're through the hype cycle. Like I want someone to read this and go like, fuck, these people know what they're doing. Um, these people know how to make games. I have confidence that this will become a real project and that's why I want to back it. So that, that was how I thought about my tone and my audience for the first draft. And, and I think things will probably actually change with, with the feedback from my team and other people at network. So what, um, how did, how did you approach, uh, uh, writing your game paper? Who did you think about as the audience and the tone like what were you trying to to achieve with it uh can i just repeat the answer that you just gave sure yeah <laughs> um i mean i think so i think the the i think in kind of like a very similar genesis as it turns out um it re it really started life or kind of draft one of the document was an internal document so um the kind of the, the the first audience for it was people who were going to be working on this thing or trying to build mm -hmm. bits of it. And so what was good about that was that it was it was very detailed and very frank, but it also had lots of like open ended stuff and possibilities in it because we were still early. And so there was a you know, it was a it was very much a working document, which is not quite what we wanted for a thing that we were going to stick on the Internet and, mm -hmm. and send strangers a link to. But then once we started the job of of converting it to something that we did want to share um yeah i think our audience was very clearly targeted at people who are curious about this project and want to know if it's going to be worth them investing their attention and their money in and the two things that we wanted to be sure that we did was um try and give anybody reading it the kind of raw material that they needed to be able to start playing the game in their head a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's always the moment when you know that you've connected with someone is when you see them start to uh, kind of um, hypothesize in their head of like, oh, well, but then in that case, I would do that. Oh, no, but if I did that, then this. And, oh, yeah, no, but then I could do this. And once somebody started to think that way, then... For a start, I think you you get a feel for the fact that you are you're sitting on a good piece of design because it's sparking mm -hmm. that result that 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 interest in people, but also hopefully it, it kind of 
gives them a reason to stay committed to the project and stay curious about about seeing it come together. So that was one component of like, we, we want this to start coming alive in people's heads. And then the other, yeah, I think absolutely for us was that credibility factor. We are a, a team that has a ton of deep hands-on game design and delivery experience. That's not true of every project in the space that right. is, is making or is claiming that they're making a game. Um, we wanted to try and do something that uh, demonstrated that uh, we, you know, that we have done this before and we do uh, hopefully know what we're doing. Um, and then I think also a, a, the third thing that kind of happened a little bit when I was uh, pulling it together is I've just really loved learning in this space and I've benefited from a bunch of people being really patient about writing materials to help you get smart about, you know, various elements of Web3. And so I think there's some projects that uh, maybe try to make a strong impression on the people who are reading their game papers by kind of bamboozling them with very, very impressive, complicated sounding stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's not fake. Uh, if you're someone who knows the field, you can usually look at it and, and see how it's all structured and you're like oh yeah fair enough but tonally it feels a little bit like it's kind of a shock and awe tactic of like yeah. yeah of like you know we're, we're so we're so much more than you you're not going to be able to understand this and i thought that there was a different way of handling that which is what yeah. if instead i could offer you uh, you know a, a helping hand the way a bunch of other projects have offered me a helping hand and say hey here's how to think about this. Here's how to get your head around it. Here's how to start getting hands on with it. So we build in some little like economy, like kind of tokenomics modeling tools. In yeah, I our... was going to get to that. that yeah. That was really cool. So that was kind of very much trying to find a different way of doing that of like, hey, we do have deep knowledge here, but rather than just kind of, you know, um, making that impenetrable, what I want to do is try and give you something that you can have a bit of fun with and maybe feel your own understanding changing as you're like, oh, right, okay, I see. So if you do that, then this happens. So getting that interactivity in there. We also, we're, we kind of, we haven't completely pulled it off yet, but we have a little uh, running tradition where we've tried to make everything that we've done playable. So our getting on our allow list is a game. Yeah. We're building a um, game. I kind of got halfway through the writing the... the uh, game paper and i was like ah could we make this playable and it's not right. I, you know it's a it's a dense design document i'm not going to try and pretend pretend that it's a laugh a minute but it does have this little bit of like interactivity and curiosity yeah, in it that talk felt about like that something... tell, yeah. tell me about tell the audience who hasn't read it yet about the um modeling tool that you right. built directly into the uh um, yeah website it's so awesome. it it you know i think when you've built a lot of games you you learn a couple of things, which is that there is one thing is there is no substitute for meticulous design thinking, modeling, careful thought, planning, all of that stuff. And then the other thing you learn is that your game will explode once a bunch of people touch it in ways that you can never anticipate or predict or be ready for it. That the, a player, a player base is a is a huge, volatile, it, it's interesting a min max machine, right? Yeah, like there, the, it's it's. 
it's if you're making games, you're inviting a group of players, uh, a large group of people whose brains enjoy nothing more than understanding systems so they can min-max them and break them. That's it. Like, and, and so when I was reading design documents that were saying, here is exactly, definitively how it's going to work. Yeah. I was... It's very reassuring. You feel like, oh, this is someone who's thought about it really hard. But as someone who's launched a lot of games, the voice in the back of my head was like, there is no way of knowing what is really going to happen once the rubber hits the road with this thing. And this is, a, this is a perfectly good plan A, but it can only be a plan A. And so we, you know, I wrote a couple of drafts where I was like defining our plan A and it just didn't it just didn't feel true. I was like, this isn't the job that I'm gonna be doing on this game once this game launches. The job that I'm gonna be doing is the the constant cycle that you're in of monitoring, modeling, adjusting, adapting, day in, day out. You know, I mean this is this is what you've lived and breathed for um, you know, the games that you've run. It's not far and forget, it's not you figure out the perfect equation and then you're done. Right. And so that made that what I then wanted to do was like, well, how do I write a, how do I write a document that explains that? And I realized pretty quickly that you can't write that document. What you can <laughs> do is you can surface those dynamics. So the, the, the document has a little tool in it where you can play around with, okay, well, if this is our token supply and this is how fast people are buying upgrades and this is how much those upgrades impact your ability to generate tokens and this is what the burn rate is for the tokens that are coming out of the economy then where does that put us in terms of inflation or deflation or flatlining? And so you can start to get a, a feel for how dynamic that environment is and how the different variables can be adjusted to control, to produce the, the, the kind of curve and the, and the um, economy that you want. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting and cool. And, and I've had a very... Um, uh, one of the projects who just some people who I read their uh, game paper and I, and I gave them some feedback on it. Um, and it was, you know, post launch, post minting, and they'd even started their gameplay and in the f form of it. And they had a level curve in, in their white paper. Mm -hmm. And it was like the level curve is 20 levels and you need this much XP to get this level and this much to get this level and this much to give this level. And I was like, uh, y'all, I, I, I kind of wish you hadn't, if I were you, I wouldn't have been that right. Like you are definitely going to want to add more levels to your level curve and you're <laughs> definitely going to want to change these values and just yeah. like you're, it was just so, um, direct, and it felt very limiting. Yeah. Um, and so that tool that you built in that lets the player start modeling it in their head and, and playing it in their head, I think is really neat. Um, and yeah, I found myself writing a lot of language that is very um, kind of couched or like, for example, let's mm -hmm. imagine we have mm -hmm. one hero that has X trait and one hero that does Y trait. Mm -hmm. Then you'll find, like, a lot of set, being clear, I was setting up hypotheticals and not, like, warrior class range, you know. Right, right, right. Warrior tricksters have exactly 42 strength. So when the, and, and I've seen some that actually have that level of um, specificity baked in. Yeah. 
Uh, and so I think I think that's that's super smart because yeah, I mean I think it's true of any game, but you know because all the things we said at the at the beginning of this conversation are true. This is in a completely new space mm-hmm. with very very strong weird new dynamics that yeah. none of us has designed for before. None of us have even maybe really experienced as players before because it's changing every month. And so thinking that you can get that get ahead of it to an extent where you can lock that stuff down. Um, I think just isn't real. Um, you want to be thinking about your levers. You want to be thinking about your parameters. You want to be thinking about the the curves and the experiences that you're aiming to create and have clear creative vision for those. But I don't think it's real to imagine that you can know in advance what the right calibration is going to be for a lot of that stuff. It's going to have to be a work in progress as your players evolve i mean you know we know in our game that, that we're, we're counting on we're designing to support players doing stuff that we haven't expected or haven't yeah. predicted and our job as designers is to bring our expertise to bear in responding to that stuff not preemptively thinking that we can figure it out yeah can you touch on um because i i've played it and i won my allow list spot as a result uh, talk about the uh, little text adventure game <laughs> That you put into Discord. I thought this was a, uh, a great example of what you talked about, which was make everything playable and, and fun and, and and portray the tone of the game. Uh, so this this is a thing called Void Adventures, uh, which is playable on our Discord. It's its internal uh, working title uh, was Scope Creep Fever Dream. <laughs> um, I found because... the scope quite limited. <laughs> like quite, it was very, what I experienced was very succinct. I don't know. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad that's the third. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't decide, we decided to do it the week we launched our Discord. So we'd had ah. a, pl- we'd had a plan for a perfectly good thing, but a much, much, much more limited thing uh, that was just going to be a little fun button that people could press every now and again. Um, but it just it just felt like a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so we started having some ideas for, it's actually, it's a pretty interesting kind of text adventure to design. So text games are, is a genre that I love, but they often have a propensity for creating games where they're, they're really puzzle based. You can get stuck. They can get mm-hmm. really exhaustive of kind of like feeling like you have to try X on Y and in every kind of possible um, combination. We're, we were both wary of those as like design patterns, but also they weren't viable for the thing that we were trying to do. This is like, there's going to be an Alialist game in our Discord. We want you to have a chance to win, but not a certainty to win. If these are a fixed solution puzzles, then all you're going to need to do is like scroll up to the last person who won and then copy everything that they did and right. write that down. And that's both just boring for you. That's just that's just a waste of everybody's time. And because also... Just, oh, go ahead. Just, just to give the audience some context, so in in the Void Runners Discord, you go to a channel, you write a com- correct me if I'm wrong. I, I I think I remember you like enter a command mm-hmm. and a bot responds to you. Mm-hmm. Does the bot put you into a thread? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the bot puts you into a thread to play um, your instance of the game, which means that it's not clogging up the channel every right. time you do a text as you play this kind of choose your own adventure game 
Um, but anyone can see anyone else's gameplay thread, right? right. I can go into your thread yep. and watch you play the game. Yep. And so exactly like if you imagine, um, you know, you could Zork or taking Sam and Max and turning it into a text game or full throttle, like it would take all the fun out of that style of adventure game if when you just read the guide when the guide's right there right, right next right, to right, you right. right yeah then it then it's just a, then it's although just a, i i hated uh point and click adventure games so maybe that would have gotten me to like them if i could just experience the jokes did. I, ne- the... I, ne- I never finished zork i never i never got through it i can't remember where i got stuck but uh they were tough those games so yeah, yeah we... i bet there's a bunch of the the if if there are any true crypto kids in in the audience they're probably like what the fuck is zork yeah, it does. It does sound like a thing that we made up. It's true. Um, uh, so, Sorry, so you didn't you didn't want the, we didn't want to do um, that. You didn't want it to be a set puzzle that That's anyone it. could That's just it. see the answer um, to by just looking at somebody else's thread, since it's a game played in public. That's it. And so, and this is a perfect example of like how you end up making new design decisions in these new spaces with different affordances. So it's a text adventure with a bunch of randomized elements. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you play, you'll get a just a, it's it's uh, subtle, but you'll get a slightly different configuration than anyone else who's played. Uh, there's different outcomes to the choices that they you make. Those are a little bit sticky. So if you, you know, if there's a door that you can go through and under the hood, there's a chance that that's gonna, uh, you know, lead to a, uh, you know, the either it'll lead to the galley or it'll lead to the flight deck. Um, that will then stay true for that adventure. Whatever we roll to be the outcome for that choice will persist if you're moving around elsewhere. Um, a lot of these things take place on spaceships, so there's a lot of that kind of stuff. Interesting. And if you, you know, if you're smart and lucky, you'll find your way to. Uh, I, I mentioned at the beginning that the the, the authority that makes all the rules uh, in this universe is the Galactic Trade Authority. If you're lucky, you'll find a Galactic Trade Authority terminal. Um, and you can maybe uh, trick it into giving you uh, an allowless pass uh, so you can get started in the game. Um, if you're not so lucky, you'll be killed horribly right, by yeah. some kind of terrible outcome. I think I got it's three a, or four. Yeah. I feel like, was burning an acid one of them? I feel uh, like I got burned in acid. We've got a, we, we, I, have a, I can send you a spreadsheet of all the different ways that people can die. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of... There's a lot of uh, you, there's decapitations and either people get launched into space a lot and I don't know if we we wrote a lot of deaths um, but then what that also does is that gates you from playing too often in a row so anybody right. who dies you regenerate uh, you regenerate at, at, at kind of like midnight um, UTC uh, and then you can play again the next day so we just wa- we just wanted any day that you show up to the for your owners discord we want you to be a little bit of fun you can have you can keep you're welcome yeah. to keep playing once you've got on the allow list it's open to everybody but yeah we what that was also really important uh for from our perspective was it's also actually where we're doing a lot of the world building and the storytelling for the game mm. so the the initial mint is very focused on these spaceships um, and the spaceships are really cool objects and artifacts, but they're um, they're objects, right? They're not even in a lot of PFP projects. You have a sense of like the the people that are in the the world that uh, is being created for you, and the spaceships are cool looking, but they're not 
necessarily very relatable and they definitely don't kind of have any narrative attached. And so a lot of what's happening in Void Runners, in Void Adventures, sorry, in the Discord game is we're immediately letting you start experiencing this story world as a player. So you're getting to make choices, you're getting to meet weird robots and ship captains and space pirates. Um, you're getting to get a feel for what the world is like. And we we started the narrative uh, design for this game, this whole project, there. And then from that, we started to uh, build out the visual representation. So over the last month or so, we've been sharing um, the kind of character design work that we've been doing for the the, the bigger project. And that came very much from that text adventure. The, the, the place that we started in designing those characters was one of everybody's favorite uh, adventures in the Void Adventures game is one that starts in a, in a space bar. Uh, you can get yourself into a bit of trouble there if you uh, drink too much or play cards with the wrong people or uh, whatever else might be going on. Um, and the, you know, the question that we started with on the, the character design was, what does it look like walking into this bar? Who are the people that you meet? Uh, what, uh, what <laughs> what's the expression on their face uh, mm-hmm. when they see you walk in? And so it's been, a, as well as kind of like being this fun uh, allow list uh, mechanic, it's also actually been really important in terms of like uh, letting us build out the the fiction of the void and the and the visuals of the characters who live there. That's great. <clears throat> um, so you you wrote this doc. It's a combine. It sounds like it kind of takes what was internal documentation and, and turns it into a bit of a. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a marketing tool, right? It's something to get people excited about your game, get them to know you and the team and what you're building, and as you said, start playing it in your head. Mm. And then you uh, put it out into the void, mm. as it were. Mm. Uh, what was the response? I can, I can, as I'm asking this question, I'm like thinking of some of the uh, blog posts or Gama Sutra articles I wrote years ago <laughs> where it's like, pour my heart into it, like 4,000 words, put it out there, put it on Twitter and Reddit and, and everywhere and then get like, one angry comment and that's it you know, like it's so i'm hoping it wasn't that but just knowing that like what was what was the response like um right putting this public game design document out there to uh your community we got some really nice feedback we definitely we we have a little um kind of brains trust of super void runners fans who we rely on for kind of like early feedback and so they had a chance to look at it first and uh they were a big help in terms of kind of highlighting the you know we had what we thought was a final draft but they were great at kind of saying hey this bit maybe doesn't quite make sense yet or uh you need to change this around a bit so so that uh was super useful that's and a then, great um that's a great le- let me pause there for a yeah. second because that's a great lesson so within your discord you have a little velvet rope area <laughs> uh for super fans yeah and they like they got an early taste of of it and they helped you improve it that's really smart yeah i mean it's i, I don't know how i don't know if they really feel like vips we're, we're mostly very grateful for their extra help but we you know you're you're building very fast in this world and you're you're building in this really like tight little bubble. We have a small team. We're covering a lot of ground. 
we're not always the best judge of right. how much sense, you know, we, it, the whole thing is in our head. So it's very, very easy for us to look at a thing and think it's intelligible and not realize that if somebody's coming into it cold, they're going to have no idea. And because there's no filter, you're, you're basically putting stuff straight out onto Twitter or into the Discord. If you miscalculate that, then you can create a bunch of confusion or you can waste a lot of effort. So we... I'm just picturing putting my own out there. <laughs> so I'm just going like, Ethan, these four pages got really racist against gnomes. Like, can you cut all this anti-gnome rhetoric out of your right? game? <laughs> you need you need that, right? You need someone. You need it's someone to save you from to yourself. the universe of legendary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So what we've done is is so for some folks who are like close to the project or who've been people who've mm -hmm. uh, you know been been really involved and been asking good questions. Uh, we kind of grab them beforehand and say, hey, can you just take a look at this stuff before we put it out? Give us some feedback. Uh, let us know if it's hitting the spot or not hitting the spot. So uh, that's our that's our Void Core group. Um, and we're very grateful to them for, for the extra effort that they're putting in. Um, so, yeah, we did that first. And then when we put it out, we got we I think we got a, a range of responses. Um, and I think uh, if you'll. If you don't mind me talking for a minute, I can tell you about kind of like the two big takeaways that we got yeah. at the end of it. We got a range from people who, and this I think was is a perfectly valid way to handle it and a thing that we had in mind when we were writing it, people who were basically just skimming it for a vibe. They were like, mm -hmm. I'm a busy person. This is a very long document. I'm not a game designer. What I want to do is take a look at this and form an impression of whether or not I buy that this team knows what they're doing and has yeah. a clear idea and is going to be able to deliver on any of this. And so those people did not necessarily go through word by word. Uh, they weren't going to like hit me up on the Discord and be like, well, hang on a minute. The, 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 you know, the power they curve that you're say, using like, for I've this. I was playing but... with your modeling tool yeah. and I found a bug when um, I do X and Y, go. right? There you go. So those people, I think, there were, you know, there were certainly a bunch of people who um, found it useful on that perspective also i think it's worth noting there's, there's probably some people who took one look, look at it and were like oh this isn't at all the game that i was imagining right. this isn't the project for me i'm gonna go check out something else and that's also great like we don't we don't want to be stringing anyone along so if if someone is looking for something different then i think it's great that they could get a feel very quickly from that document if this wasn't going to be the right project for them um then there is a a middle ground of people who skimmed it a couple bits really resonated with them and then they that kind of like became a little earworm for them about the things that they picked up on but it's interesting when you would be answering questions for those people that you would realize that they maybe hadn't there were other big swathes of the document that they hadn't taken in again super reasonable it's a huge document and it's right. very very hard to hold it all in your head at once so that was kind of interesting of watching that oh this person's going to really really zoom in on the upgrade portion or this person's really interested in the fiction or and they're going to kind of pick and mix and then some people you know are people who pride themselves on their ability to analyze these projects and who know a lot about p2e and and, and they were then coming in and asking like detailed questions of like how are you going to handle this and what do you think about this approach for disinflationary design or or whatever else oh that's cool but the the kind of two things i realized once it was out that I slightly wish I'd known before I started is 
is thinking about it really specifically as an ongoing resource. So that middle group, I think don't view it as a failure for that middle group if somebody comes back to you and they've read one paragraph that stuck with them and they've disregarded the next. It's like, oh, that's great. That's the scaffolding. And now I can point you back there a week from now to look at the, another bit of the document that you're now going to be able to make sense of because you've kind of like internalized this first bit that you've read. So it's not necessarily about saying this is a this is a thing you have to digest in one sitting. This is going to be a resource that I am going to be pointing people to over and over again. And I do think it's a it's a pedestrian detail, but I think thinking about making sure that it's easy for whatever on whatever publication platform you're using to point people to really specific components mm. within the design document is is really really good. I think Gitbook is a <laughs> Gitbook. We, we did it in Coda because we wanted to do those those interactive bits. Uh -huh. But Gitbook would have been our second choice, and I think Gitbook's a really lovely platform for like being able to send somebody to just a little bite sized chunk of like this is the bit you're going to care about. Go read this first, right? And then I can point you to some other places to go. So um, you're saying that uh, my seventeen thousand word behemoth. I'm going to release it and then on Discord just be going, well, if you looked at page 27, paragraph B, so paragraph two. stanza two, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. just that over yeah. and over yeah. for days. And so yeah. those better all be little links. The little, I would recommend the little links. It does, <laughs> it does really help. Um, and then the other thing is just remember that not all of your audience is, is going to be uh, people who like words, people who like print. Right. So... We are also, we also did like a little graphic video explainer of like, this is, this is how the game works. We're following that up. We have more coming out this week um, of like visual tools. We're doing a lot of like Twitter spaces or Discord stages to talk to people who are going to have, uh, going to find this stuff more digestible conversationally. So there's no document that will work for people who don't think in documents. Right. Right. So you, you have to remember that there's going to be a category of people that you will never reach with that stuff, even if you do an amazing job, even if you write the best game paper ever written. Some people are just never going to have right. a good time with the document. And so it, it's tough because it is extra work to put those things together. Um, but, you know, what I found is that some, you know, I've, uh, machinations is a tool I use a lot for like... Um, economy modeling and for some people that like diagrammatic approach is really uh useful some people like documents some people like um animations some people like verbal and so if you're able to communicate the the idea across all of those channels you're gonna connect better with people right if if you think about this all as marketing for your game and and for your moment of minting it seems like the question you're asking yourselves is how can I take this content? And, and the content isn't the words, it's actually the design and the thinking, right? How can I take this content and communicate it in a couple different formats and venues to reach different types of audience? Because not everybody um, likes reading the advanced Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master manual cover right. to cover right. two or three times. Right. And instead and not of playing with other children. That's it, right. and and then <laughs> and then also, you know, we're we're hoping to attract a global audience, and all right. of our written comms is is in English because that's yeah. 
um, our first language, but it's great to be able to do some other materials that can travel a bit further. Mm -hmm. Um, So for people who are not going to have a good time reading a long English language doc, it's nice to have some alternatives. So yeah, I think I, I kind of, it's easy when you're writing the thing as one long document to evaluate it on the basis of what is someone else going to get out of this if they read this whole document. I think now I see it as a bit more modular of like, is this giving me, this is more like, it's a little bit more back to that kind of like wiki thinking if you've ever written GDDs in wiki format of like, I'm trying to write the encyclopedia of the design of my game that people are going to dip in and out of (laughs) rather than necessarily reading as a novel. And then is it going to help me know what I need to know to produce some other representations, visual or audio, so that I can reach more people with it. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I, it, we're, we're getting near to time, and sure. I've, uh, I've uh, only gone through maybe a third <laughs> of my questions. This is very similar to our long uh, car ride talk <laughs> the other month, but like clearly we could go for two more hours talking about this. Uh, but I want to make sure that I close by getting to your minting, because the yeah. minting's coming up. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, 8th so, of June. June, what, what, uh, what are you, you're, you're selling ships. Uh, how many, how are, are you, how did you price them? Are you auctioning yep. them? Are you, which, which chain are you on? Like, right. what can, are kind of the highlights of the minting coming up? I can answer some of those questions. Uh, so the, the ships mint on Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the longer term plan for the game is that we're expecting to move to an L2 for the gameplay to ensure that it's uh, cost effective for everyone to play but the initial ship mint is an Ethereum uh, mint you may have noticed uh, that it's been an interesting couple of weeks in the markets it, it, yes I may have noticed <laughs> um, and so we're actually just we're taking this week to talk to all our project advisors compare yeah. notes with other projects um, to just give ourselves time to make sure that we're making really good current decisions on supply and price. Mm-hmm. Um, so that information will be available soon, but uh, uh, we're, we're not announcing it just yet while we uh, finish up having those conversations. Um, but June 8th is the, the day that we're going to kick off. And we, we did, we talked a lot last week about whether or not to delay. Um, and we, I, actually I wrote a long Twitter thread about this we actually felt really, really strongly that we that we didn't want to, that it, it has been a painful couple of weeks for more than a couple of weeks now for, for a lot of people. But our conviction in the space remains so strong and we know that there is a huge amount of value waiting to be unlocked in Void Runners. And so we decided to just go for it. And I think that that's what's going to enable Web3 Gaming to keep improving is if people keep going for it so we're going to be one of the people who keeps going for it so yeah we we mint uh the genesis fleet collection these are 3d spaceships uh generated we have a a generator that we built in unity that kind of it almost grows each spaceship uniquely so it starts with a hull uh and then we have a, a a complicated system of weighted rarities that uh, kind of rolls through all the possibilities of the things that you could add to that hull. So we have over 120 different components that can be added onto these ships. Um, and so it, it kind of figures out a unique configuration. And so the ships are really varied. 
uh, and they're really they're varied in in really realistic and meaningful ways. So the the gameplay behavior, the stats of each ship, are determined by the components uh, that are chosen in the generator. Um, and and the goal is that that's also kind of like really visually legible. So if you see a ship and it's got a ton of thrusters and a massive booster on the back, it looks like it should be fast. That ship will be fast in game. If Got you it. if you get a ship with a ton of cargo containers, that ship is going to have a lot of capacity. And so we're kind of really hoping that you get a real kick from seeing a ship because you know immediately what it means in gameplay terms. So That's great. Uh, and when you mint, you get gorgeous visuals. You get a turntable video. You also get access to our interactive renderer. I'll maybe re-up the Twitter thread on this because it's super good. That's a really fun hands-on tool that lets you like pose and manipulate your ship and export really cool pictures of it. Uh, they have to tell you, they uh, paste into a Discord channel like a million dollars. <laughs> We've made a lot of good-looking stuff on this project, but That's the great. ships look so good on Discord. And you get the 3D model so you can export it to other Metaverse projects. Uh, we love them a lot. Uh, and I hope people get a chance to check them out. Awesome. Well, if you've, uh, I, I hope everyone in the audience has enjoyed listening and learning as much as I have from this conversation. Uh, we'll make sure to post this episode up before the minting on the <laughs> 8th. And so if you're interested, make sure to find uh, Void Runners on Twitter. Make sure to find them on Discord where you'll find the information about the minting and quantities and pricing and I wish you the best of luck uh, with this minting next week. I'll, I'll be sure to grab mine. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on to talk about what a rousing success it there was. There you go. Guaranteed. <laughs> Ethan, thank you so much. Uh, I love talking to you. This was a real treat. Thank you. All right, friends. Thanks for listening.